First, let's, let's kind of remind ourselves uh, where we are, where we've been. Uh, you know, we've working our way through Luke's gospel, the first couple of chapters, uh, seeming to be about its childhood. The gospel's written to this most excellent Theophilus. Uh, that's, that's actually important to, to think about, that this is the testimony to Theophilus. It's, it's a reason for Theophilus to understand the things about Christ that Luke has to say. And we've been introduced to this baby Jesus, and Luke has shared some very legitimate witnesses. And, you know, Luke 1, 2 says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word who have delivered them to us. So he's speaking very literally about people that saw these events happening. Uh, they're witnesses to this Christ King who was born. And now we know who some of these witnesses are. Uh, we saw the angel Gabriel, uh, Jesus' mother, Mary, Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, some shepherds, a multitude of heavenly hosts, and from Tim's message a couple of weeks ago, Simeon and Anna in the temple. So that is a very long witness list. So if this were somehow a jury trial and the defense were calling up witnesses, these are experts. These are people that witnessed firsthand this coming king. Maybe not fully comprehending uh, heavenly host, Gabriel, they would know, but um, even the angels don't know all the ways of God. Uh, the message from all those witnesses is how special this baby is. And it, it makes me think of Moses. Moses could be considered a foreshadow of Jesus. And Moses was considered very special. I mean, when the Pharaoh's daughter took him out of the water, he said, this is a fine baby. And the word fine in Hebrew, the word that was translated to fine, could also be translated as good. So she saw the baby and he was good which kind of sounds like that creation story, God creating these various things and seeing them and seeing that they were good. So we felt that way about Moses. And that's why I was thinking of Moses when we really got a special baby. And the specialness of this baby is his deity. He's God's son. Luke shifts this narrative by not just adding a few more amazed people, I mean, it is amazing how many people are amazed, but I'm sure you can think about times of recalling the work of Jesus and being astonished and amazed at who he is and what he does. So these people just seeing him were astonished and amazed. And in this narrative, we do have more people who are astonished and amazed, but we have one more thing, one main character that hasn't spoken yet, but speaks now, and that is Jesus himself. So Jesus becomes one of the witnesses to who he is. And then Luke goes silent about anything Jesus has to say for quite a while. So he's going to have a few words to his deity, and then we don't get to hear anything until his ministry really starts rolling. So we get to hear those words. We get to hear who, he, who his claim is to who he really is. And I'd like you to keep in mind the, the tension of Jesus being fully God and fully man. It, well, tension's really not the right word. Um, tension creates in my mind a, a dichotomy or these, 
these two factors that are pulling. There's a tension between them, and you, you don't know, am I heading toward being God being, or Jesus being fully God, and that pulls against him being fully man? But the reason I don't like tension, what I, well, is that that tension doesn't exist. There is no pulling in Jesus. In Jesus, bond would be good. He's got fully God bonded with being fully manned. They're one in the same in the body of Jesus. So there's a lot to understand about that. To, to say it is simple, but to really comprehend the depth of that is deeper than the oceans are. And, and this week we have heard a lot about how deep oceans are. Um, Jesus never loses his deity while being man, and he never loses the physical, physicalness of man while being God. In his role as man, he has temporarily put off or put aside some of the attributes of God, but we must be careful how far we take that. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't lose any of those. He, it's like he chooses not to use them. It's an intention to be man in front of us, okay? In Philippians 2.7, you see the words, he emptied himself uh, in taking on the form of a servant. And that's been studied in controversy, challenging the dual nature of Jesus as God and man, just those very words. And I think there are too many examples of Jesus using his divine nature to entertain that argument. I mean, it, it's unacceptable to think that he's not both if you're really reading through Scripture and more specifically the Gospel, and in very specifically this Gospel. Luke really takes the time to, to, well, to tell Theophilus, but really to tell all of us uh, that Jesus is the Son of God and he is fully man. And with that theme of God and man in mind, we'll see today the world getting a firsthand look of how that plays out. Uh, you know, Ben Cunningham, uh, pastoring up in Washington, I guess it is, uh, once here, he, he had delivered a, a sermon, it was at Calvary, where he opened with an argument of what Jesus might have meant in one of his parables, and then followed that up with the question, what if Jesus himself walked in the room and told us exactly what he meant? How beneficial it would be to us to not have to, to try and figure it out, but to have Jesus actually tell us what he meant the person just walking in the room and telling you, why are you coming up with all that silliness? This is what I meant. Wouldn't that be great? Well, that's what he's doing. We have the opportunity this morning to hear direct from Jesus himself who he is. It's quick, and it's not fully revealing. It, it can't really be a full explanation of his deity. But when you think about it, how can who Jesus is or who God is be fully explained. There's just not enough words. Uh, the, the last words of the Gospel of John, they confess. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books 
that would be written. He's that big. So it's okay that you don't fully comprehend him. He wouldn't expect you to. John is confessing, we haven't got the time. You know, we have a finite life, and that finite life for the believer is going to end with a comprehension that is beyond what we have now. But until then, don't feel bad if you don't fully comprehend what fully God and fully man means. It will become clear to the believer. So let me read this passage, and then we'll pray and remember to pray for my marathon nose that just keeps running and running. Uh, Luke 2, 41 through 52. You know, if, if you care to sit through this and be one of those prayers for me, that'd be great. If you can stand while I read this out of reverence for the word, that's also welcomed. The boy Jesus in the temple. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposed him to be in the group that went a day's journey. And then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding of his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. Lord God, you have this short narrative in Luke that is written to Theophilus, but written for us. And we pray that we could take these words and applying to our lives to each of us in the way that you would have that happen. Let your spirit guide that application and let us willingly become submissive to your word and your ways, your rules and precepts. Lord, let us glorify you in the ways that we do this. Lord, I pray for uh, this body that the Holy Spirit would descend upon or well up in the hearts of the believers and just make clear what I don't make clear. Just make understood what I'm not able to explain. Make Jesus Christ the deserving king the biggest spot in our hearts. And then let our hearts rule our lives. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you. Well, I, I titled this summer, this sermon, uh, A Boy Becoming Man. And uh, there's, there's some significance to this, this boyhoodness. Um, 
I hope it will come out in the sermon. But I'll speak to what I'm calling two and a half minor applications and then one major point. Uh, the minor applications are going to be, uh, excuse me, the minor applications are searching for Jesus and being angry with God. And then that half minor application is just going to be a surprise bonus. I'll let you know when I get there. Uh, it's, as Tim was discussing earlier, as he did kind of this overall view of Luke, um, the theme to Luke's narrative or his, his entire letter to Theophilus is that of Jesus being fully man and fully God. And more than any of the other Gospels, it, it really highlights the humanness of Jesus. But not letting go of him being God. Therefore, the, the major point will be the human side of a 12-year-old boy who grows as a human and yet knows he is the Son of God. He grows and knows. In your outline, because I just felt obligated to follow the system and have some blanks for you all to fill in, Jesus, fully man, must first be fully boy. He's fully man, but not without first becoming fully boy. So let's look at uh, finding a boy who isn't lost. Uh, the first portion of the, the verses, 41 through the beginning of 46. And it just starts out, verse 40, tells us that the child grew. And verse 42 tells us that Jesus is 12. I, I've come to realize that this is really a special age, not just for the contextual Jesus in his time, but for all of us. 12, it, it's just a a rite of passage, so to speak. And it doesn't all hit us at 12, maybe some at 11, some at 13, 14, but it is in that area where a child kind of makes this decision that I'm going to move from being a child to being a grown-up. And it takes a while, but those first steps seem to be around the age of 12. Uh, so I think it's fitting that we're looking, or Luke is looking at Jesus' life at this 12-year-old uh, stage. I also want to quickly address something about the synoptic gospels, and that is that, that this narrative doesn't appear in the other gospels. And Luke jumps right to this age of 12 without mentioning things like Matthew does that the child's life is threatened by this edict by Herod, and they go off to Egypt and later return to Nazareth. Well, it's a principle that when you're studying Scripture that you just have to understand. It's really an important pattern, and that is an absence of detail is not a conflict of detail. You got that? Something being absent from a narrative doesn't mean it didn't happen. Therefore, it doesn't conflict with some other gospel mentioning that it did happen. 
You're not saying, oh, don't listen to Matthew, just listen to Luke, or don't listen to Luke, just listen to Matthew. Both are true. I don't know what you had for breakfast, if you had breakfast. But if you had breakfast, you had breakfast. Me not knowing what it was is not significant to the fact that you had breakfast. That's all it is here. So don't, don't let this absence of detail turn into a conflict of detail. My daughter went to uh, UC Davis. On, uh, she was an English major. And one of the courses she had to study was the Bible uh, as literature. And I was kind of excited around that until she came home with the stories about the Bible conflicts in so many places. It's just conflicting itself. Well, I didn't get a chance to listen to the professor. I asked her for examples, which who remembers what they learned in school kind of a thing. So she didn't have them for me. I would have loved to argue with this particular professor. I think he was taking advantage of a class full of students that didn't necessarily know the Bible. Some probably did. And those who did may have been bold or not bold enough to say something about timeout. That's not a conflict. But I would love to be in front of that professor and at least explain to him something I ended up praying for him that to, to make a statement like this, if not fully true, can be very, very dangerous for his life, his eternal life. It's kind of like a millstone tied around his neck and dipped in the or thrown in the waters. Um, he is, in that case, misapplying scripture, and in doing so that doing so with that, he's doing it to an audience that is like, oh, tell me more, tell me more. This sounds like it's right. And and that means that he is fighting with what God wants them to know. Fighting with God is not a battle you can win. So, again, it was in the beginning an anger toward this professor. I don't know his name, but then a prayer for him. I don't know how that worked out. I guess I got off on a tangent. <laughs> um, so according to Luke, what was important to those 12 years is that Jesus grew and became strong. That's what he records about the childhood to, or you know, a baby to a 12-year-old. It's just that he grew strong in, in, in wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Being filled with wisdom could be taken as knowing everything. But the fact that Jesus is found in a temple amongst teachers is evidence that he wasn't filled with all wisdom. I think this wisdom and favor could be easily interpreted as the boy grew smart and healthy. If you never got sick in a day in your life, somebody would say, man, you've really got the favor of God. I think that's the kind of favor and all wisdom that we're talking about. Admitting that the boy is, eh, he's a pretty sharp cookie. He seems a little smarter than most. And, uh, you know, he, he doesn't seem to get sick a lot. Uh, that part of sin hasn't really touched him, so to speak. Uh, so he grew uh, smart and strong. I don't think we should read a lot more than that into that uh, saying. So that brings us into uh, 
verse 41 through the beginning of 46, and that's finding a boy who wasn't lost. You know, Joseph and Mary are very devout Jews. Verse 41 tells us they would go down to Jerusalem every year. Every year. Their obedience was to what we can read in Deuteronomy 16, 16, three times a pilgrimage to a place the Lord will decide. Those three times would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. You might think, oh, he was there for Passover. That's not one of them. Well, Passover is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There's the similarities. Um, This Feast of Unleavened Bread is the reason for this particular trip, this specific trip. And Luke isn't really talking about so much about all the other trips. He just wants to introduce that these are devout parents. Um, Another clue to their devoutness is how long they stayed at the feast. Luke records in verse 43, and as the feast was ended, as they were returning. So the feast had come to an end and then they went home. The reason that's significant is this feast would be about a week long, and the Passover being the first day All that was really required by the culture was that you would get there for the Passover. And many of the Jews would be there for that day or two and then return home. To hang around for the whole week was just maybe Luke's way of saying, look at these guys are taking this really serious. And they were there for the entire feast. Mary and Joseph, both of them, stayed for the end, okay? Out of devoutness, Joseph would make the trip yearly. For women to go annually wasn't required, but due to her devoutness, devoutness, Mary would also go yearly. Luke doesn't say Joseph went. He says the parents, both of them, went. It isn't clear if Jesus joined the other annual trips, as Luke only concerns himself with this specific trip. Luke also makes no mention of the family's other children, Jesus' younger siblings, which doesn't mean they attended or not, just that they are not of consequence to Luke's narrative. So Jesus is 12, and at the festival's end, the family travels home. But Jesus stays behind. How was Jesus not noticed missing? Verse 44 answers, he was presumed with friends and relatives. Nazareth Nazareth is a very small town, and it's not on a busy route. In fact, you wouldn't really call it a route. It was a one road in, same road out, end of the road town. Little valley that had nowhere to go once you got there other than to leave the way you came. Real quick, show of hands, this is audience participation. How many here have been to Annapolis here in Sonoma County? That's more than I expected. How many here have heard of Annapolis here in Sonoma County? Okay, we're growing, but we're not half yet. I knew Danny would have it. Um, that's, that's Nazareth. There's not a lot of reasons to go to Annapolis. And you probably have a reason to go there if you find yourself there. You may be a weird route to get out to the coast because it does have a road out of Annapolis other than the road in. Um, but, but that's Nazareth. It's off the beaten path. 
I was reading up on ancient Nazareth. The, it's, it's become a, a large city because of its historical significance, significance but it, it wasn't. I mean, it was really small. And archaeologists have a way to figure these things out. I thought they were pretty clever. Uh, because it is a very, very small valley, they would terrace the hillsides to grow agriculture. And the significance to that is they had to to feed the population. And with the amount of terraced agriculture they had, it could be estimated two to 300 people in the entire town. So it's a very small place, very humble place. Um, also really interesting, it was because of its geography, it became an escape. If, if the Romans were after some Jews that were revolting or something, Jews would hide in Nazareth. And the Romans didn't bother going there, because why would you? They even excavated. These Jews would build these um, basements. You know, they would, the, the limestone, the, the structures were. You could tunnel into them without the tunnels collapsing. So they built these, these little caves, including tunnels off to another cave, to another cave, and they might go three or four layers down, very involved, and very useful for hiding your treasures, things you don't want to be taxed on. So it was a way to, to combat this Roman op occupation. And then those same caves were great for hiding people later, when they had to. So that's kind of Nazareth off the uh, biblical significance. But, but take from that that it's very small. You would know one another in this town. So for Jesus to be not noticed missing isn't as peculiar as you would think. He could easily... It's like, uh, you know, if, if I had my grandson here and I want him to be cared for, and I look like, hey, Robin, can you watch James for a little bit? And she'd keep an eye on him, but he's 12 years or 14 now. He, he'd probably be okay on his own, doesn't need a, a helicopter uh, ante. <laughs> um, so that's probably what was going on here, that the parents are trusting that Jesus was with another one of these either family members or acquaintances. And that's what the Bible describes. Not very strange. Add to that that a 12-year-old of that time may not be the same as what we think of 12, the responsibilities of a 12-year-old today would be. Um, if I think back to my time as being 12, and anybody here that's over 60 can think, you know, a half a century back, to what were the sorts of things you were able to do at 12 that there's no way you would let your grandkids do today? That's kind of what's going on here. He is getting a whole lot closer to adulthood than we might think a 12-year-old today would, would do this. And that's just 50 years. 2,000 years ago, what would it really be like? How, how irresponsible or responsible are these parents not to have a really close eye on their son to not realize for an entire day, bless you, uh, for an entire day that he's not with us. It, it, this one doesn't bother me. I, I am comfortable that they weren't being irresponsible parents. So in verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple. 
And I would ascribe to the, the timeline that says, one day of travel going out from Nazareth, not noticing that he's missing, and then realizing that he is. One day of travel back to Jerusalem to go find him. And then on the third day, actually finding the boy in the temple. So looked around Jerusalem for a while. Maybe it's even early morning, but the way they count days, you could still count that as being the third day. Another timeline would be, notice them gone, hightailed it back to Jerusalem. Once they got there, they started the clock. It's a big town, and they looked all over the place before they finally found him in the temple. I don't think it really matters a lot. I think the stress is what matters. This would be very stressful on the parents, having a child lost, and whichever timeline you use for at least three days, you don't know where he is. If you do the part where once they get to Jerusalem, you got one day out, one day in, plus three. Still, super stressful. You know, every hour of searching in that timeline would be stressful. And in the news this last week was this submersible that had gone missing. And I think that's an easy one for us to figure out what the stress means. I mean, the world had in some cases, a, a mere curiosity of what happened to this submersible. Will they find it? But if you were on that search team and you knew that if you don't find them in this 90 hours that they thought they might have of oxygen, that would be really stressful because you finding them or not was going to dictate the outcome. So if I'm either leading a search crew or maybe a person that was right into the hands-on detail. I wouldn't sleep. Every waking moment, every, every thought that I had would be around these people that are trapped in this submersible. Mary and Joseph must have had the same sort of thing. Where is our son? I don't know how many of the people here in this room were either a kid left behind and the parents didn't realize or are a parent that didn't realize they left their kid behind. I was one of those that got left behind multiple times. <laughs> they taught me how to do it, so I started leaving my kids behind. <laughs> and, you know, imagine yourself, you, you go to Disneyland and you lose your kid. How bad would that be, Scott? <laughs> That's a big place. And if Scott were really clever, he would just sit down and not move and he'd be found. Good job. <laughs> Jesus knew where he was. Mary and Joseph didn't know where Jesus was. You know, this, this stressful search for Jesus is one of those minor points up. It's not, I'm, I'm not making this the main application because it's not congruent to the theme of Luke's letter. Finding Jesus is just this little thing we could talk about for a little bit, but it's only a little bit because the bigger theme is the important part. So some compare this search for their son with people's search for Jesus. 
and that it's a difficult one, it's a stressful one, it requires exceptional effort. And all that sounds good. Like I say, it's just not congruent with the, the overall theme. So what I will say about it is, if you're looking for Jesus, if you want to find Jesus, then do what this passage kind of suggests. Go where the work of the Father is being done. That's where Jesus will be. And what are those works? Where is Jesus being glorified? Where is he saving souls? Where is he caring for his church? And where is he being a personal God? There's probably others. But if you want to see Jesus, look in those places. He's there. Okay. It was minor. I told you it'd be quick. And then verses 46 and the rest of 46 through 50 is really getting into the detail about this boy in the temple. Uh, so they find Jesus in the temple. And yet again, like the beginning of this book, right up to this point, there's a lot of astonishment and amazement happening. Uh, compare 46 and 7 in detail. In 46, Jesus is listening to the teachers and asking questions. And to me, this is big. Jesus is the student. And you can't gloss over that. Luke mentioned it in verse 40 that Jesus grew in wisdom. But he didn't grow in all wisdom. Doesn't mean he had a full understanding of all things. At 12, he's a boy on the verge of adulthood. The custom of bar mitzvah, if you're familiar with it, it happens at 13 in Jewish boys today. That wasn't around yet. That, wasn't, that was something that came after Jesus' time. But the concept was there. The concept is that at age 13, a Jewish boy would be held accountable to vows to the Lord. So if he swears that he's going to do something to the Lord and he doesn't, he's going to be held accountable. That's at 13. At 12, it's a time where you get real serious about your education because you got to know what you're getting into. So sending a 12-year-old boy to a temple to me, it's likely that there were other 12-year-old boys in that temple doing the same thing, learning the realities of God, taking it serious, taking it up another notch. The thing that I say, we, we start developing in this 12-year age, transitioning from child to a, maybe not all the way to adult, but you know, the, the teenage, being a rotten teenager, you're, you're getting first steps into that. So the instructions for a 12-year-old Jewish boy would be intense. Um, Jesus had, what do you want to say, a leg up on the other boys? He astonished and amazed the teachers with his questions and his responses. I not say he really had the answers, but just the way he responded to the teachers amazed them. Well, sure he had a leg up on them. He's God, but he's God with a subdued deity. Uh, Mark and Matthew both record Jesus addressing end times and, and says, but concerning that day, an hour, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, 
but the Father only. So he's saying, I don't know when end times will happen exactly. I know they will, but I don't know when. Only the Father knows that. So there are things that Jesus the Son does not know. Son of God still does not know those things. He has put aside his deity for part of his, or, or for his manhood side, so to speak. Self-inflicted limitations. Um, knowledge of the Father and knowledge from the Father are really big for Jesus. He needs to know these things. So he needs to be in this synagogue learning, or in this temple, learning the things of the Father. He still needs to continue in his education. So, so do we. Uh, and I think that is the point of the narrative. That Jesus, to be fully man, he must grow in ways a man does. We, we like the concept of Jesus experienced us. But do you think back to that means he experienced what a child man is, or a human child is. He experienced what a human adolescent is. He experienced what a teenager is. He started as a child, and he must grow through the development of being a boy. He must mature from boyhood to adulthood. His human body must grow as ours do. As a boy, he must know the submission to parents. He must learn even of spiritual matters. We have these things in common with this growing Jesus, especially the spiritual growth. So necessary for us to have a spiritual growth and for it to be intentional and for parents to take that role of making sure your kids do have a well-balanced understanding of things. That would be well-balanced in spiritual nature, scientific nature. We have this creationist or not series, but uh, sermon coming up, and that'll be delightful. I mean, that, that really, if you haven't had it, it will give you this introduction of how to wrestle between science and spirit and they're, they're, they're kind of like this. It's not a tension. They can be bonded. They can be pulled together. So look forward to that. So in common are we with Jesus, with Jesus as a man, that we have the same teacher. Think about that. Jesus' teacher is our teacher. It's the Holy Spirit. We have that. Tingly, just thinking that the same spirit that edifies Jesus is edifying us. It's, it's grand. It's fantastic. It's, it's incredible. I'm one of those people who in this room would be amazed and awed at the things of Jesus. And then in verse 47, right after 46, right after Jesus being the student, it's the teachers who were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Very quickly, Luke flips this narrative to Jesus being the teacher. It doesn't say that he was teaching the teachers, but his understanding was so immense that it was the beginning of his, wasn't the beginning of his ministry of being a teacher, but it was the building block. When I sent the kids off to junior church, 
they're, they're learning a foundation, and that's what Jesus was getting here. He was learning a foundation to him being able to be the teacher that he became. Interestingly, Luke is the only of the Gospels that Jesus isn't referred to as rabbi. As an example, we can look at Matthew 23, 8 through 10, where Jesus says, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. It makes sense that Jesus would be an exceptional, excellent teacher. As he has astonishing understanding and application of Scripture. Not just an understanding, but he can talk it through with people. He's got the application portion. And it makes sense because his perspective is firsthand. That's where we got to be careful with this whole thing about did he set aside all of his deity, all of his nature as God to become man? I, I think Tim this morning used the words of he has put it aside. And putting it aside implies that he could pick it back up. And he does. I mean... He's fully man who walks on water. He's fully man, but he could disappear in crowds. Don't, don't be fooled into thinking that he's, he had to rid himself of being God to be man. So not only are the teachers in the temple astonished, but Mary and Joseph were also astonished. Probably both in amazement and at, or excuse me, at what they saw him doing these, these responses to Scripture. And they were probably amazed in the sense of where they found him. You know, they, they lost him, they found him, where they find him in the temple. That alone would be amazing. You know, I'd try and find where the basketball hoops are the soccer field is. Jesus found the temple. That's what was important to him. You put yourself in, in the shoes of the parents or sandals of the parents, and I would either go down the path of asking, how do you know these things? That would be the one path. Or the path that Mary chose, and that's one of scolding. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. The parents had been put out. Two days of travel down the drain. A day's about 20 miles. They probably had 60 to 80 miles to get home, depending on whether it went around Samaria or not. It, I have a sister-in-law that I love very much, and she's got this saying, I get angry if I have to head south to go north. If the roads just don't agree with her compass, man, the roads are wrong. So imagine what she would have felt if she had traveled a whole day towards Nazareth, had to turn around and head south to go north. She wouldn't be happy. And here we can look at the second minor application. Can you imagine scolding God? 
Really, that's what Mary did. She scolded God. Maybe didn't understand his deity at the time. She had a better clue than a lot of others because of her personal witness. But she's sitting there scolding God. Probably one of the responsibilities she had in raising this boy to have him become a man. And it really isn't far-fetched as one might imagine. How is Mary scolding God any different than us getting angry with God? Might even use the word getting angry at God, a misdirected angry or anger. It happens often. You know, probably most of us, one time or another, have found ourselves really irritated with God. It doesn't have to make sense to be true. It doesn't make sense for me to get angry with God. But the truth is, it happens. And I believe with maturity, there's a realization that such anger is better defined as confusion or bewilderment, not anger. As we grow in the Lord's omniscience, his knowing of everything and where we're going and where we need to be, we deflate any notion of our anger being directed to God. So as we grow in maturity of his faithfulness is when we cease to be angry with him. We understand that our best interest is what's on his mind, even when it doesn't agree with what we think our best interest is. So if we really are, or if what we're feeling, we don't understand as, as bewilderment or confusion, and we, we, we believe it's anger, where should it be directed? If not heavenly, I suppose the answer would be to the worldly. But I say even better, don't get angry, get even. No, I'm kidding, that's not biblical. <laughs> anger will happen. But the word advises in Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You see that connection of Satan and anger? And then you want to think about being angry with God? If that's what's going on and you don't sort this thing out, what you're saying is I'm going to side with Satan against God. Not a battle that Satan's ever won. You don't want to be on that team. Okay, so that was, again, a minor point. That's still not the thrust of his message. So Jesus responds gently to the question that Mary asked out of frustration. Again, Mary said, your father and I have been searching. As we have seen so many times in all the Gospels, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, you, you can... Maybe remember, if not, I'll, I'll tell you that Jesus goes through this series of, of sayings with the Pharisees. And he says, you have heard it said, and then he'll quote what they're saying, but I say, so he'll use the words of the Pharisees or the beliefs of the Pharisees and turn them upside down and give the true meaning of something. So that, that is common amongst Jesus' responses to people. He uses the words of the inquisitor in his response. Mary says, your father and I have been searching. Jesus responds, did you not know I must be in my father's house? 
So let's unwrap that response. Mary was referring to Joseph, and Jesus is revealing his nature, and he's referring to his heavenly Father. And if, if you're the type that underlines something in a Bible or highlights it, this would be the one that I did, if nothing else. Because they're the first words that Luke records of Jesus, and they announce his deity. It's massive. A Pharisee would, would probably say, Aha, we gotcha, you're claiming to be God, that's blasphemy, let's hang you on that cross right now. They weren't there, it wasn't his time, that didn't happen. But that's how big of a deal those sayings would be. Those very few, not fully revealing words would be. The boy's true father is God, but he remains submissive to human parents. And that would include Joseph, the father that Mary was talking about. So all the witnesses of our chapter testifying to the special nature of the baby Jesus, and now we hear the boy himself, soon to be a man, speak for himself to his deity. His revelation is still shrouded a bit in mystery, verse 50, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. So it's shrouded in mystery, but it is fully there. And from our perspective, having an understanding of who Jesus is, having the luxury of being able to read forward into the book of Luke and other gospels and other scripture, we know who he is, and it is less of a mystery. We have the Holy Spirit informing us. It is less of a mystery. But to them at that time, it wasn't completely clear what he was speaking of. So in verse 50, and they did not understand the saying he spoke to him. In verse 51 and 52, Jesus returns to Nazareth, less a boy than he was. And it says, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Early in chapter 2, at the manger scene, with the visit of the shepherds and the angels, we saw the response of the people. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Luke wasn't present at this time. And probably a very big source of the information that he records would have to be from the treasures of Mary's heart. Oh, there, there's just so many minor applications, and, and I could even list out more, but here's that little bonus half minor application. Here we learn there is value in storing up the wondrous things of Jesus in our hearts so they could be shared later with those in need. Let me say that again. There is value in storing up the wondrous things of Jesus in our hearts so they can be shared later with those in need. B-A-W, sharing the wondrous things of Jesus with others. And we know there's a need. Excuse me. And to connect a couple of minor applications, this little half one and going back to that anger issue, do you want to store up anger in your heart? Or do you want to store up testimonies regarding your Lord? Which will have value in the kingdom? Is God not the author of our hearts? Hebrews 8.10, or Hebrew 8.10, 
I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Or Psalm 37, 4, one of my favorites. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Not everything your heart wants, but he'll actually make his things your desires all the way to your heart. And that's a wow for me. I mean, our desires for things of the world will be rewritten by the Lord and the desires of what he knows are better will be the ones that he writes. And what's the price? Simply delighting in him. I'm awed, I'm amazed. I get why Luke records so many people are. So Luke notes in verse 51, Jesus' submission to his parents. He continues to be a boy. He continues to be submissive to their authority. It's not his time. You know, in John 2, 28. No, I have that reference wrong. John 2, 8 and 9, it is. The, the wedding, the Cana wedding where Jesus turns the water to wine when Mary comes to Jesus and explains the problem. He gives her one of those thought-provoking questions and says, why do you come to me? It's not yet my time. And then that my time is probably his crucifixion time, but the, the big deal is he's got an order of events. Certain things have to happen before his time. Those had not happened yet. He didn't want to to change the timeline. Here too, he's not ready to just stay in the temple and send his parents away. He still has growing to do as a boy. And you know, it's kind of interesting. Luke takes the time to talk about this 12-year-old boy that the other Gospels don't. And He's going he's gonna to let a couple of decades pass before talking about anything that Jesus did. Well, I mean, a lot of time has passed, but as far as what he's recording, there's close to 20 years, from 12 to about 29, 30, I don't know, 31, right in that timeline before Jesus' ministry really begins, and that's what Luke picks up. So he's got all these not not stating what Jesus was up to years. But in 40, or 52, he has kind of a last parting shot to the necessary growth of Jesus the boy to Jesus the man. Note the words that were added in 52 that were missing in verse 40. When you compare 40 to 52, it's the inclusion of the word man. Verse 40 ends with, and the favor of God was upon him. Now in 52, Jesus increases in favor with God and man. So as to speak, the world notices, or at least this small world of Nazareth would notice, that Jesus is no longer a boy, but he's grown to a man. So why is Luke spending so much time, and me too this morning, on a baby and a boy? Well, to be fair or clear, Luke wasn't written in chapters, but it was divided down to chapters. And he's devoted a whole chapter 
to, to this child boy narrative. And with 24 chapters in the book, it's, it's not a majority of the time, but at least it's a significant amount of time and enough, enough is said here that you get that it's important. Luke could have just replaced verse 40 with, re, with verse 52. Instead of saying that he grew in wisdom and favor with God, just say, hey, he grew to be a strong young man full of wisdom and in favor with God and man. And left out that whole narrative about what happened in the temple, what happens with the 12-year-old boy. Why did he do that? Why did he give us this narrative that none of the other Gospels did? And I think one way to answer that question is by asking a deeper question. What important detail does Luke want Theophilus not to miss? And in turn, we could ask the same of ourselves. What importance is the narrative to us? And I believe the answer is in the fragileness Jesus went through in his youth, both as a baby and a boy, he was certainly fragile as a baby. I mean, fully dependent on the mothering of Mary to survive. Fully dependent on Joseph and Mary to take him to Egypt so that Herod doesn't get him. These were not choices Jesus was old enough to make. These are just the care of a parent to a baby. And then that changes a little bit as he becomes a boy. Fully dependent on Mary as a baby then becoming more dependent on the family unit as a boy, if not a majority of his nurturing as an adolescent happening from the earthly father, from Joseph. You know, teaching the boy the ways of life, teaching the boy what's important, teaching the boy scripture, teaching the boy a livelihood, just allowing the boy to grow up under the, in the household of a father, human father. As a boy, Jesus also needed to grow spiritually. Much of that would have been by his parents, just as it is in our lives. And in, the, in this narrative, we also see formal teaching in the temple, his father's house. The boy Jesus was not yet full of the Spirit. This will happen at his baptism. He'll have a greater understanding of things with the Spirit guiding it. Until then, he, he just needs an awareness of Scripture. He needs awareness of spiritual matters. And then he could start discerning them. And maybe astonishingly, but he has to be told. It's not just... It's not the way that God ran the story. He introduced a baby who had to become a boy, who had to learn, just like we have to learn. He had to grow, just like we have to grow. Jesus was growing as an, as an adolescent in all the same ways we do. And we should never wish it any other way. If he were to skip this age of development, we would not have a Savior fully familiar with the ways of man. Until I got into this passage, it really didn't dawn on me. I thought of Jesus in terms of 
Yeah, he became man so he would know my temptations, our temptations. Can't say that Jesus knew my sin because Jesus was sinless. But the things that lead to sin, Jesus lived them. That made him the better Savior. And when, when I had that concept of Jesus, the man dealing with what humans deal with, it, it's glorious. But when I, when I explode that, when I build it exponentially, by adding that Jesus is aware of what adolescents go through. I mean, your teenage years are going to be those years where you decide to be rebellious, that you have unmerited confidence, you're a know-it-all, you know everything. I don't know why you listen to my parents, they don't seem to get anything right. These are the years that seem to be necessary to, to get us out of the house, you know, Boy, they're welcome to send me away. And I was real anxious to go. And it was kind of dumb, really, on my side. I wasn't ready, but I had to be kicked out of the nest to see if I could fly. So these are, these are tough years. I mean, I got all the hormones going through me at these years. Well, so did Jesus. Jesus knows what that means. He knows what he was saving us from. He's super lovingly. And, and we're also presented so many questions. What is the meaning of fully God? Huge question. that We don't fully know that answer. If Jesus temporarily set aside some of his godly nature, how much did he retain? He had remarkable understanding as a boy, but he still needed instruction. Again, things like he was, he was in the full physicalness of man, but he walked on water. Those sorts of things. The clarity of what it means to be fully God and fully man may not be completely understood by us, but what we do know is this, that Jesus was very much a boy. I'll close with that. Lord God, we are awed and amazed at everything about you, about you, Jesus, our Savior and King, not just the story of salvation, but the story of who you became that led to that salvation, the perfect sacrifice, one fully aware of why he's being sacrificed, the full understanding of the temptations of man, Jesus, in your humanness, you became like us so that we would know that you get us. You could get us without all this. You could do it without all the pain and anxieties that went with it. But you chose, Lord, to become us so that we would know that you were trustworthy, that you are the perfect sacrifice. And Lord, in that, as we prepare to receive this communion. We could be thinking of the sacrifice and all that led up to it and all that it is. Not just a cracker and, and juice to represent body and blood. Yes, they are those things, but the things that are behind them, Lord, we pray that we'll always be awed, that we'll store these things up in our hearts 
that we could share them with others when their time of need comes in front of us. Lord, I pray that we are bold in our testimony, that we could be included in the list of witnesses to Jesus' nature. And Lord, we, we pray that as we, we go away this morning, that we'll just contemplate the words of this narrative to understand that being fully man would include being fully boy. Amen.